0: Tonight I'd like to take a brief break from Colossians. I don't even know if that's what I should call it, because I suppose we are still in Colossians with, uh, with this sermon. It's, it's not really a break, I suppose, but it's, I want to explore a theme that is very central to the writings and the teachings of Paul. It's not only Paul, it's other New Testament writers, but it's primarily Paul. And it's not really a break from Colossians, because over the last couple of weeks, we have seen how Paul in Colossians chapter 2, and you can go ahead and turn there, we'll start there, I suppose. How in Colossians chapter 2, Paul has been using this idea of union with Christ to describe the new life that we have in him. Union with, with Christ. And just to make sure that you get some of these words in your head, I want to actually start, let's just read a few of these, let's just start in chapter 2, verse 6, and notice how many times you see language like, in him, or with him, or Christ in you, I don't think that's in this text, I think that's elsewhere. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world according to uh, and not according to Christ for in him the whole fullness of deity bodily dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. If we were to continue reading, we would find numerous other examples of these important prepositional phrases in him or with him. I think there are seven or eight instances in, in those several verses. And as I said last week, this theme of the union, our union with Christ is a rich, multi-layered theological theme that runs throughout the New Testament. And for me, personally, it's, been, it's one that's been hard for me to get my mind around. And so I've been working on that. But I'm noticing more and more how centrally important it is to the Christian faith. Let me read you a couple of quotes from a couple of different uh, authors and theologians, most of which are old. Uh, the Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, said this. He said, Being in Christ and united to Him is The fundamental constitution of a Christian. It's the very essence of being a Christian. One other theologian said this, he said, there are no benefits of the gospel apart from our union with Christ. One pastor said this, he said, union with Christ is theological shorthand for the gospel itself. And then J.I. Packer, no sermon is complete without a quote from J.I. Packer. He said, this doctrine is so important that it's impossible to make too much of it. It's a doctrine that's usually described with prepositions. Examples could be uh, in Christ, as we just heard, or with Christ, or Christ in you. You and for me, it can feel like a little bit of a, of a muddy idea or an idea that is so abstract that the words can seem like they don't have, a, they don't have practical meaning. Right? And we need to fight against that, that struggle, right? It struck me over the last several weeks that almost every single blessing that Paul mentions here in Colossians chapter 2 comes by virtue of our union with Christ. So if we miss what that means, we're really going to have an impoverished understanding of what it means to be in Him. Then, just a few few days ago, while reading my CBR reading, I realized that this is indeed exactly the case. Listen as I read Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single blessing, every spiritual blessing comes by virtue of this union that you and I have, believer, with Christ. And so we got to fight against muddy thinking here, right? Because it's really hard to enjoy the benefits of something you don't understand. Have you noticed that, Right. It's hard, to enjoy a, uh, let's say it's hard to enjoy a tax break if there's some benefit that you don't know about that's buried deep in some tax code and you don't have anybody to show it to you or help you understand it, right? We don't understand that. And in the same way, we can totally miss out on the incredible practical benefits that come from being in Christ. The more that we understand of our nature with Christ, the na- sorry, the more that we understand the nature of our relationship with Christ, the more that we can enjoy that relationship. The more, that, the more we can enjoy this new intimacy and this fellowship that we enjoy in Christ and with Christ. Now tonight is really, I don't even know if I can call it a high-level overview. It's so broad and so deep. It's, it's really, I, just, I want to try to zoom out a little bit, since we have lots of this language in Colossians, and try to describe this union that the believer has with Christ as simply as I can uh, by using a number of illustrations. And then I'm going to try to give you one really practical application for how this impacts our Bible reading, okay? And we'll look at a number of different texts, and I'll, I'll keep you posted there. But before I go any further, let me, let me ask uh, the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, this was your idea. And we know that your ways are much higher than ours, but you've revealed it to us, and we're asking for your spirit to impart fresh understanding that we are positionally in Christ and the spirit of God is in us. And if Christ is with the Father and the Father is in Christ, Lord, help us to understand how this works together. I pray that each believer here tonight would be encouraged. And if there's anyone here who does not know you, would that you would draw them irresistibly to yourself. We ask this and by way of blessing. Amen. So last week we talked about union with Christ in terms of participation. You remember that? We talked about uh, the example we used was uh, someone getting a Super Bowl ring even though they didn't play in the game, right? They are united with the team's victory merely by way of participation. Let's, let's revisit that, that for a moment. Let's think about it like this. I didn't play football, but I watch football. I watch so much football, I feel like I should have gotten credit for playing it, right? But one of the most physically demanding positions in football is that of running back. These are the these are the guys that tend to get beat up brutally, right? They usually don't have careers as long as in the NFL because they're just getting they're getting pounded, right? It's the player that holds the ball and runs into the other the opposing team's biggest guys, and they're trying to you know stop him. Well, there is one well-known NFL running back by the a player by the name of Maurice Jones Drew, who is a three-time Pro Bowler and a, had a very successful career. But what's interesting about him, besides the Pro Bowl and, and all these things, is that he's one of the smallest running backs to play the game. At only five foot seven, he led the NFL in rushing yards several different times. But Jones Drew did not do it by himself. He had these massive guys that were in front of him paving the way, right? Sometimes it was a, uh, a fullback. Sometimes it was an offensive lineman. Um, but, but whoever it was, it was somebody who was significantly much bigger. One, one guy by the name of William Rackley who weighed 150 pounds more than Jones Drew. And he would go through the crowd and he would make, make the way. He would blaze a path into the end zone, and then Jones Drew would follow him, ideally, follow behind him, and then make his way into glory. That's part of, uh, describes what it's like to be in Christ, that Christ has made a way through hostile forces, that he carved out a road to freedom, and we hid behind or in him. And of course, our union with Christ is a much more intimate affair than a running back behind a fullback, right? It is much more intimate than that because we who belong to Christ do much, much more than just follow him. We are intertwined with him. So much so that the Bible teaches that his life becomes our life. Now, tonight we're going to read a number of texts that you are very familiar with, but I want to encourage you to really try to make some of these connections. We are so, believer, we are so united with Christ that his life becomes our very own life. When Jesus died, we died. When Jesus rose, we rose. When Jesus ascended into heaven, we ascended. He blazed a way for us. He made it possible to live and he even provides the very life like like through an umbilical cord. So here's here's a basic summary. Union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you and tonight we're only going to focus on that first phrase being in Christ. I had ambitions to do both and y'all know me. So, there's that. So, let's, let's think about what it means to be in Christ. Again and again, Paul says that we are in Christ. That's his, that is his favorite description to describe our spiritual condition. In fact, Paul doesn't really use the word Christian. I, I mean, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he was, at, was fine with it, but we don't see him talking using the word Christian very often, perhaps Not at all. Instead, he uses the term in Christ, which for Paul is the very essence of the Christian message. To be in Christ means that Christ becomes your representative, like that of a leader representing a group. This is an idea that's familiar to us. We live in a representative democracy, We have representatives, for better or for worse, we have representatives who speak for the people. When our representatives speak, the people speak. They are speaking on our behalf. If you're lost with politics, let's go back to sports. That's easier for me. Anyways, right? Same thing with the sports team, right? If a player on the team hits a home run, who celebrates? Every, I mean, the entire team, right? Even the fans, even the guy on the couch who's never swung a bat in his life, right? We, we are all united and celebrated together. The, the team, the coaches, the fans all celebrate as if they had hit the home run. Others get to celebrate and participate in the triumph of another. There's a biblical example of this that we looked at last year in First Samuel. In the story of David and Goliath. Alright, you have two warriors who are representing their people. You, have you ever read that and you wonder why? Why don't they all just fight, right? Like, I mean, surely they can just get, I mean, there's probably some way to deal with Goliath if you get to some sort of strategy or something, right? But, but instead, what was happening is David represented Israel, all of Israel, and Goliath was representing all of the Philistines, And so when David's victory was achieved, who got the benefits? All of Israel, right? It was credited to all whom he represented. We could say that all of Israel was in David, even though they did not participate in the battle. In fact, think about it. It's not only the soldiers who won, but it's their wives and children back home who won. They weren't even there, They all participated in the victory in David. This is how Christ represents those who place their faith in him. He is our representative. If we are united to him, and listen carefully to this, that means that we are united to him in all that he has done for us. Now, I would imagine that very few, very few folks in here would say, yeah, I didn't know that or I don't agree with that. But what, where we often get this perhaps off is that we usually only think of being united to Christ in terms of his death, right? He died in my place. He died for my sins. He was a substitute, right? Jesus died for me and that is absolutely true. But it is more than that. Because this relationship, this union, extends to all that Jesus has done. So think about it like this. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. When Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. So all the effects of the crucifixion applied to Paul. Then, perhaps later in Romans chapter 6, when Paul says, I am buried with Christ... Okay, we could also say, if you're in Christ, you are also buried with him. But then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, which we'll get to soon, it says, if, you, if then you have been raised with Christ, well, then we also get the benefits of the resurrection. In fact, we could go even further. Let's go higher. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, where Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. For those who are in Christ, all of Christ's life has significance for us. You get credit for all the good works he did. I struggle as I, this is one of those two, it feels too good to be true sort of. Like, I feel like I, my, God stretches my mind a little bit, and I'm like, oh, this so too much. I'm like, no. God gives us this benefit in him. Those who are in Christ, all of Christ's life has significance for us, not just his death. Christ is seated in heaven at the right hand of God. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean if I am in Christ? Well, one thing it means is I can talk to God. As if I was standing there beside the throne. If my feet were at the bottom of the throne and the throne was in front of me, I can talk to God like that. You think that'll revitalize your prayer life? Would you be distracted, right? If you you have that image in your mind of talking to God Almighty, you can see how union with Christ influences our prayer flip over to galatians chapter 2 verse 20 let's look at let's just let's walk let's try to walk through this together galatians ephesians philippians all right i've already i've already mentioned this verse galatians 2:20 for me growing up this was one of my favorite verses that i didn't know what it meant Anybody like that before? I love that verse. I don't know what it means. All right, let's see if we can figure out what this means. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, we see Paul applying some of these realities. Look, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's, let's start with that first phrase. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Okay? He says that he has been. That means it's already happened, but the, the, the effect of this action is continuing on into the present day. That, that Paul is saying that he is united to him and that he is with him in such a way that he somehow shared in the crucifixion. Well, how else would he say that he's been crucified with Christ? That somehow we are able to participate in the crucifixion. Do you think that would have an impact on your life? If you, let me just be really crude, I guess. If you were crucified today, would that change your evening plans? right? Like, it, it's, a, it's so easy to get stuck in like spiritual la-la land sometimes, right? I mean, it, it, it would have, I mean, if you died today, would that change your life? Yes, everything would change, right? If you're dead, what would be the same? Nothing. Nothing would be the same. Of course, it would be different. So, Paul says, I no longer live, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The person that I used to be is dead. There is nothing about that person that remains. I'm no longer the same person. This helps us because we realize the Christian life. I was in a great discussion in men's Bible study last night where we, we were trying to talk about this. The Christian life is not about improving yourself. It's not about taking your moral level and bumping it up and gradually behaving better. It's not about just getting a little control over your anger problem or handling your finances better or doing better about your thought life. It's so much more than that. The Christian life is not primarily about changing behavior. It begins with the story of death and it moves on to a whole new life. Remember last week, we mentioned 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. A whole new creation. The old, what happened to the old? Is gone. Passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are talking about a new person, a new self. So Paul says, hey, Paul doesn't live anymore. Who lives? Christ. Christ lives in me. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment, but let's keep going to what he says. He says, now... The life I now live in the flesh. Okay, so in other words, the, the Pauline body, right? The Paul, or, or your body, you are still the same physical person. You still have a personality. You still have, you know, characteristics. That, that, I think that's what he's talking about flesh here. Like the body, the bodily form. It's not that he has changed bodily, but who he is as a person has fundamentally changed. So then he goes on to say, what? Now, says Christ lives in me, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith is how our union with Christ operates. It's what, it's what activates it. It's what it's what becomes it's it's how it becomes operative and powerful in your daily life. Faith is how you take hold of this new reality. That God has said is true about you, and it's how you act. We'll We'll get to some more some examples in a moment. But if God says, you are my son, then it takes faith to act and live like a son. That takes faith. We'll come back to that in a moment. This new reality becomes the defining truth about your life. It becomes the core identity of who you are. You now have a new story. A new story that is more true than your old story. In fact, it's more true than anything else about you. When I was in high school, I had a job at Chick-fil-A. And one day, I was asked to perform a task that surprised me. To dress up like the Chick-fil-A cow. Yes. I saw the fist pump back there. You're still Chicken. The Chick-fil-A cow was a $5,000 mascot investment. And I quickly discovered that I was too tall for such uh, such an experiment. But I did discover, you know, it was not a very great experience. It did have air conditioning, which is or fan, which is crazy. But what I discovered is that small children do not appreciate a giant cow walking on its hind legs, coming up and like giving high fives. All right. They may now, but this is back in back in the you know, early two thousands. They didn't they didn't appreciate it as much. But you know, it's one thing to dress up as the Chick fil A cow. Not so cool. An entirely other thing to dress up like Mickey Mouse. I've never done this before, though my ears would make me a good candidate. (laughs) But I read an account recently of a girl who was reflecting on her job at Disneyland. And she had the job for multiple seasons of dressing up as the main Mickey Mouse. Listen to, this is, uh, these are her words. She says, Growing up, I thrived on behavioral modification. I thought if I'm good, I'll be loved. If I'm bad, I'll be rejected. So I learned to wear a mask, not to show what was going on. At my core, I believed that I was not worthy, that I was not good enough to be accepted or to be loved. And so I would manufacture and manipulate to get positive attention, the positive attention that I wanted from people. And then she said, no one gets more positive attention than Mickey Mouse. She described how when she would put on that costume, she felt loved and adored. Every day, hordes of people would come running to me with joy and excitement. And she said this, this is a believer. She, she said, I felt safe and loved, covered in Mickey's righteousness. I think this is a picture of what it means to be in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are completely safe, completely hidden. He, the, he, in the outward man, he represents you before God. He covers you. He covers up all the sin, all the insecurity, all the shame, all the guilt, all the unworthiness. But as you can imagine, there are places where our union with Christ is different than dressing up like Mickey Mouse. Because being in Mickey, can we say that? Being in Mickey, it's a fiction. Right? It's not real. It's, it's, it's a masquerade. It's a temporary and false identity. But when we are in Christ, we are not assuming a false identity. We are discovering our true, real identity. One that will last for all eternity. And we can actually move through the world alive in Christ. Clothed with all his benefits and all his blessings and even his suffering. In Christ, we are accepted before God. Not just the outside, but at the very core of our being. We don't have to have fear of judgment before God because we are hidden with Christ. Is Christ afraid of God? No. Is Christ ashamed before God, His Father? No. And we are in Him and enjoy those benefits. I heard of a little boy once who saw a bank robbery by a man wearing a Mickey Mouse costume or a mask. And he was so confused. Why would Mickey Mouse rob a bank? It doesn't make sense. I mean, he's Mickey. Do you see why it is so tragic and so confusing when Christians live according to the flesh? We who are hidden in Christ, living according to the flesh. It's like Mickey robbing a bank. We move through the world as little Jesuses, but we act like little Satans. How backwards and demented is that? Last night in Bible study, we were talking about being about what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit there in Ephesians chapter 4. And the reason we grieve the Holy Spirit is because we're not living according to our new identity as the body of Christ. A child of God, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Colossians. We are now called to embrace this new identity and live up to it, live into it, live it out. Now, I think there's a great danger here in hearing this language. This, the, the, these are not metaphors. These are not figures of speech. And these are not just simple theological ideas that are exciting to think about. They are not just ideas. They are true. This, is, this, this description of our position in Christ is more than just a doctrine to absorb. It's more than that. Our unity with Christ is not just a metaphor. It's real. The Spirit of God dwells in us. And we dwell in Christ. It's real because the Holy Spirit is real. And He is the real life, the real umbilical cord by which Christ pours out His real life and His real love into us. So that's why we read about the love of Christ being poured into our hearts by the Spirit who has been given to us. So when Paul says that we are in Christ, it's not a figure of speech. It's a new fact. I recently read that when Paul wrote these phrases, these in Christ phrases, where he wrote uh, back there in Galatians 2, when he wrote uh, crucified with or buried with or raised with, that he or seated with, he was literally making up new Greek words. Right, we we do this from time to time in language. You smash words together. He was he was adding prefixes onto Greek words in a way that wasn't used before. He was adding the meaning of with, right? So they all understood what it meant. What it means to be raised, but Paul is saying you are raised with, smashing two words together to create a new word, which is fitting. You know why? This is a new reality. It's a new reality. Paul is literally stretching for new language because these realities were new. Something unique happened. Reality and the world that you lived in, I think this is what took place on the road to Damascus, that Paul realized everything has changed. These are new facts. Now I want to spend the last few minutes that we have together thinking about how God can create new realities. This so is something that was new for me, and I thought I would share it with you. Thinking about how is it that God can create these new realities and how they can impact our life. And my hope, my prayer, is that this would make this more concrete in your relationship with the Lord, leading to more intimacy. But let's, let's think about this. Let's start with God's voice. How do we see God creating we saw this on Sunday in John chapter 1 with the logos. How do we in Genesis? How do we see God creating? What does God do? He speaks. God's voice, the word of God has creative force. It has it is a creative utterance. God speaks, "Let there be light," and what happens? Light that has never existed before exists. It's created. God has the ability to use his words to produce new circumstances. To produce new realities. Light is not a metaphor. It is a real thing. And these descriptions of our position in Christ are real. They are new situations. In just a few weeks, I will have the privilege to officiate my oldest sister's wedding. And just think about what happens at a wedding. It's a, really, it's a really unique celebration. We'll have a big party and a ceremony and all this stuff. And when the time comes, I will act on the authority that has been given to me by the church and authority that's given to me by the state to speak words that create a marriage. I will have the ability to pronounce a marriage into existence. I now pronounce you man and wife. It's a creative utterance. Now, it's a small one, right? And it's given by other authorities. But that's what's happening. Using words, a new reality will be produced. A new social contract, a construct with including new realities, new rights, new privileges, new responsibilities. All at a word. A man and a woman who are not married now will suddenly be man and wife. A word that is spoken by the right authority in the right context creates a new reality. That's what God does. When God says, let there be light, creates a new reality. We can understand how God's done this creating the world, but here's where I want to encourage you to think a little bit more carefully can God not also do this for spiritual realities we all believe I suppose that God can and has the power and the ability to say let there be light and light exists if you wanted to create something else some third category of light and darkness he could do that he could speak and it would obey right is it not also true for spiritual realities Let's let's take, for example, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's Romans 6, 4. So according to God's word, my baptism counts as being united to Christ in his death. So according to this declaration, God declares Nathan has died. I mean, he has really died. He died in Christ. And in Christ, Nathan has also risen to life. And that I really have new spiritual life. Here's what I'm saying. God literally speaks your new identity into existence. He speaks your new gospel identity in Christ into existence. This is not just a metaphor. This is not just a play on words. It is real. It is as real as real can be. I now have a new identity, a true identity. In fact, my new identity is truer than my old identity. Do you, feel, do you ever have those moments of How you, you get a sense of how life is supposed to be? It's a longing for heaven. That is, that is more real than the old self, the old sin because of what Christ has done. God has declared it to be so, and his word has created it. My favorite place to see this is in Romans chapter 4 verse 17. You can listen or you can try to flip there, but listen carefully. I think this is easier to understand. He's talking about Abraham, and God says, as it is written, I have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let's, Let's think about Abraham as the example. God created a whole nation. How? Out of an empty womb. I mean, think about what a nation is. A nation is scores of people that come out of a womb. God took it. Do you remember what God said about Sarah? How did He describe her age? She's as, or I guess, Abraham. They described it right. She's as good as dead. God took an a dead, empty womb created a nation. He speaks things into existence, Romans 4 says, that were not into exist, that were not, that did not exist. A womb that was just as good as dead. In the same way, God can declare that my old self is crucified with Christ, and by faith I'm raised with Christ, and all the new benefits that I enjoy. But how is this practical? Practical. I hope you're seeing some ways, but let me try to give you one really clear way that this can be practical. Again, by illustration, let's think in terms of citizenship. Citizenship. The Office of U.S. Immigration Service has the authority to bestow the right of citizenship on whoever it chooses, however, it chooses right? It, it, it declares and bestows citizenship after an application or whatever's involved. They take candidates and then they lead them in the Pledge of the Allegiance and then they say something like this, I now declare that you are citizens of the United States of America. A word can declare citizenship. The citizen is no longer Canadian or Mexican or British or Ethiopian or whatever. He or she is now American with an entirely new identity. In an instant, that person can suddenly identify with all the core stories of American history. Suddenly, Martin Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech is relevant. Suddenly, the Revolutionary War is relevant in a different way. Suddenly, 9-11 is relevant. Suddenly, the Constitution is relevant. Suddenly, hot apple pie and baseball take on new meaning. The person becomes an American. When God declares that since you are united with Christ, your citizenship is in heaven, your whole identity changes. Your union with Christ And your citizenship in heaven becomes the fundamental part of your identity. It is more central to your identity than your American identity. Some of us are far better at being American than we are at being citizens of heaven. And that's how it is with us. Suddenly, because of this declaration that we are in Christ, suddenly all the stories of the Bible... Especially the accomplishments of Christ. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you hide in him, guess what God says about you? Child, I'm well pleased. All the stories of the Bible become relevant. They become personally relevant. They become our story And now we're called to live according to that new citizenship. And what I've found and what I suppose you have found is that these declarations are so difficult and so incredible to believe. They're so difficult to absorb. They're so overwhelming. They're so too good to be true that we got to get it into our head day after day. We've seen it is hard for someone who has lived as a Mexican for 45 years to come and suddenly live as an American for 40, for years, right? We've seen that. But this is why we desperately need to meditate on the Scriptures. Because the Bible constantly reinforces, as surprising as it is, it constantly reinforces and declares and defines my true identity, It tells me over and over again that I am a child of God. And if you are in Christ, that you are an heir with Christ. All that Christ has earned, you get it. And since that's almost too good to be true, the Spirit works in us. Romans says the Spirit testifies in us as we pray, crying out for us, Abba, Father. So as we meditate on the scriptures, mindful of this union we have, we are reminded every day, this is really who I am. Not primarily a sinner, but in Christ. Our new, more real, more true identity in Christ becomes gradually reinforced in us. And gradually, slowly, progressively, we begin to see ourselves We begin to see God, we begin to see the world, and we begin to see our brothers and sisters as God sees it, the way it really is. Let's pray. Father, who could dream this up? So we give you all the credit, all the glory. Glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Help us to live and to walk in the way that we have received Christ. Thank you for what you've done for us in your name. Amen. You're dismissed church. Go in peace.